Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because own. they are hard. Try to, try to, try to find my way home. Welcome back, Culture Force. I am excited today because we're going to do a fireside chat with my pal, my BFF, Chris. But before we do, Chris, I got to tell you a story. This is so fun. This morning, uh, I got to go talk to a water polo team. And, you know, it's not that often that I do kind of these, these energetic, motivational speaking engagements. It's not really my shtick. Uh, sometimes, honestly, I think I'm not that great at it. But today I thought was really cool because these kids are dealing with something unique, something that none of us have ever dealt with. They're dealing with getting the rigmarole, getting jacked around on their schedule, right? And I went in there, my friend Steve had me go in. He wanted me to come in and just talk to the kids about, uh, you know, hard work, patience, uh, and, and give them some uh, encouragement. So as I'm talking to the kids, you know, one of the kids asked me like, hey, what can we do for uh, how do we stay motivated? How do we stay encouraged when we're getting jacked around on the schedule because of what's going on in the world? I mean, their schedule, they might not start for another six months. And... And I said something that kind of came out of all we've been doing here and all we've been learning through all of these great leaders that we've had on the on the pod over, over this season that I kind of culminated a lot of it, as well as my experience that I thought was really powerful and could be hopefully useful to some of our listeners was, hey guys, why don't you all work together and figure out how to develop a culture of motivation internally with you guys? All come together figure out, hey, know, know that we might have six months. Maybe we get pushed back another three or four months. Maybe it's, we're looking at 10 months before we have an actual first game in the league. And I said, hey, knowing that, you guys know that, that's half the battle. Know that and now develop a plan internally for you guys to all stay positive and remove all the negativity from the team because that negativity is going to come. That negativity is going to come no matter what. So you guys need to sit there and focus and develop a plan together to have positivity and energy knowing that you might get pushed around. You might get jacked around again for the season. 
So uh, they were pretty excited about that. And I, I was like, hey, who's, who's, Mr., who's Mr. Positivity? You can't break him. Like, who's Mr. Positivity? Okay, that's the guy. Whenever you guys get bummed out, someone gets bummed out, you go talk to that guy. So I thought that was good. I, I'm sure there's a lot of other um, teams out there that are uh, dealing with the same thing. So I just thought I'd share that little nugget. I thought it was kind of cool. All right, quick question. First off, that's a cool story. Did you get in the water with him? I, I, I had to come here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I, I wasn't able to because uh, I'm still nursing. A, it's kind of embarrassing, but I'm still nursing a, a little back injury as well. So, surfing or? Yeah. yeah. You Over, heard about overuse. You heard about my uh, surf injury, right? First time mm-hmm. I went surfing to learn how I broke my pinky toe. Oh, yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. It's probably oh. the most manly injury you can get surfing. What? what uh, where were you and when was this? It was at La Jolla. But uh, like La Jolla in the last three or four years? It was probably uh, about a, maybe two years ago. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I was on a big board at the, at the sh- huge waves they have at La Jolla. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners who don't live in California or San Diego, uh, La Jolla is probably the smallest, one of the smallest uh, waves in uh, San Diego. <laughs> Anyways, I was I was chasing a barrel, and um, no, no, he wasn't. And uh, <laughs> I got up on the board and I flipped off. When I landed, I I literally landed in shallow water on my pinky toe, and it just it turned deep purple. Deep oh, purple. So I'm sorry to hear that, buddy. But that sucks. There you go. Uh, quick question: If you had a chance to assemble all the Navy SEALs, you get to pick your team. Could you beat? the U.S. men's water polo team? Mm, that's a great, well, I, that's a great question. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And here's how long do I have to assemble the team? <laughs> well, okay, I mean, we'll, do, we'll I have, do I have six months? If anybody knows anybody in the U.S. water polo team, we want their number. We're going to call them up. We'll have a conversation <laughs> with them on the podcast and we'll see if we can maybe put some together, well, who knows? And the reason why I say that is because I'd have to spend some time researching who in the SEAL community played water polo at the collegiate level. Well, hold on. So hold on. I know several. That's why. Uh, you know, the my famous, the guy who I talk about, uh, Muskrat, the JTAC yeah. in, in my ID story. Yes. He played at uh, at uh, State for two years. State, so, here, what, UCLA or where? Uh, sorry. Uh, what was it? Ventura? Um um, Long Beach, sorry, Long Beach. Well, and so and program. so did Nick. Nick played at Long Beach. I mean, there's there's several guys who played at the collegiate level. For I want to see this because I feel like you guys would fight dirty. You guys, it's not that you would just score. There's you could get in and, and throw some, some elbows, but you guys have been taught sort of how to um, handle. But here's the other thing: in the water. Sure, but here's the other thing, right? All the guys I'm referring to, they played water polo, but then add on, you know, 10, 12, 15 years in the SEAL teams. So they're not young. So that would make it even probably. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. And and no, we won't see because <laughs> everyone's all over the map. <laughs> I'm going to spend zero time on this for the record. <laughs> I I don't know. Hey, while we're, while we're just kind of, uh, before we get into it, we did a podcast yesterday with Dan Crenshaw, the U.S. congressman from Texas. That was so much fun. Former Navy SEAL. Um, he's a gentleman that lost his eye in Afghanistan, I believe. Um, also, Pete Davidson made fun of him on Saturday Night Live a little while ago, and he went on. But Dan's a great guy, great congressman, and uh, he quoted the Joe Rogan show to us. Yeah. And I, was, I felt like he was saying, 
I like your podcast more than the Joe Rogan podcast <laughs> that I was on. <laughs> That's great. I don't, I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and listen. To, I don't know if he said that, Chris. I, mean, I could I'm be wrong. <laughs> reading between the lines a little bit, but you know, it's easy to misinterpret a politician. Yeah, but sure, like, sure. Sure. He was saying that. I know him and Joe are basically like best friends. So that's pretty cool. All right. So let's get it. So before we get really into it, you have one of my favorite stories. And I think the listeners are going to enjoy this one. You have a story of when Gary Vaynerchuk set you straight on Twitter uh, deployment, if you will, or execution. Dude, you got to tell that story. I love yeah. the story. Well, a lot of people get set straight by Gary on Twitter, so that's nothing new. But what was what was special for me was he did it while I was standing. He did it on Twitter while I was standing about three feet away, um, and he was staring at me, so, which is even better. But we were doing an event, uh, so I used to be the VP of events and handle all the marketing for Dave Ramsey's events. That uh, and Dave Ramsey, if you don't know, he's a money guy. We were the third largest radio show in America. We had over six hundred radio stations, probably a little more now. And uh, we were doing an event that we had brought together called, um, I forget what it was called, to be honest with you. It was some fancy name that I came up with that was br so brilliant, I can't remember what it was. But it was it was Dave, and we had brought in Seth Godin, who had one of the largest and most read blogs on the internet about marketing. And I think at the time, he had thousands and thousands of readers of this blog, still do, I'm sure. It's a great blog. Um, and then Gary Vaynerchuk, who was probably the most influential uh, and hot Thing when it came to social media marketing uh, that there was. We brought it together um, for this business event and we got to, uh, we went over to the, the Jazz Theater at the Lincoln Center in New York, overlooking um, uh, Columbus Circle, if you've ever been there. And we brought them together for this one, one event only. And so they were each gonna speak and then we were gonna call people up from the stage and do a little bit of our version of Shark Tank where they could ask questions and Gary, Dave, and Seth would sort of poke into it. Anyways, long story short, we're getting ready awesome. to, so wait, wait, they were going to do like a, like a Shark Tank style or more like a Q&A panel. It was, you got to go up and ask them all three a question about your thing and then they would oh, sort of really? speak to it. Yes. Oh, that's fun. So it was only about a thousand people or so. It was, it was pretty fun. great. Yes. And uh, so we, we started off that event. We had like a, what was it called? Flash mobs. We had the jazz theater kind of bringing their jazz people and we sat them in the audience. And as we were getting ready to start and everything before it started, we had all these people just pop up and play jazz. And it was a pretty cool start to the event. So. You, and you were the originator, the originator, the manager, the PM, the project manager for the entire event, right? Yeah, I was the VP of that whole event. It was, it was sort of a universal idea that we'd all pulled together. Um, it was my job, my team's job to make it all come together and happen. And uh, so anyways, long story short, we're backstage, we're getting ready to kick things off. And uh, uh, Dave, is, uh, Dave is a great guy, sort of in his green room. Seth is there and he's like, hey, before, I, before everything goes, I'm gonna take a walk around the block. Here's my phone number. He was super chill. Mm. Just call me if you need me. I'm gonna take a walk around the block. Gary was kind of like, hey, I'm gonna go over here and do my thing and I'm not really gonna do what I told you I was gonna do. I'm gonna do something completely different, um, which is really, if you've ever seen Gary, just do what he did, sure. which is Q&A. But anyways, we're getting ready to start. I took a picture of them, Dave and Gary and Seth kind of looking over our, our plan for the day and they're all kind of huddled over this thing. And I, I posted it on Twitter, getting ready to kick off our, our event. And uh, I tagged them all, right? And not two minutes later, I'm standing three feet or so away from Gary. I get, I get a notification that Gary Vaynerchuk's tagged me in a post or, or uh, mentioned to me. And he said, hey, Chris Mefford, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> 
And so, and he linked to an article about how to do Twitter properly. And so it was like, it was a little embarrassing because I was supposed to be this hotshot marketing guru who'd pulled this whole thing together, sold this whole event, marketed it, and brought these, this whole great team together. And then he called me out on it. And it was basically, I forgot to, when I, I put the tweet out there, if you put a period in front of it, everybody sees it instead of just my audience or just his audience. And so he was just sort of, like, awesome. instead of saying, hey, you're doing it wrong. He just, <laughs> no, you know, awesome. I can't be bothered to come talk to you. Yeah. It's pathetic. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, man, he wanted it for uh, everyone to learn by your mistake, <laughs> which is which we can all appreciate. I was grateful for it. And that's why we love Gary. That's great. Yeah, he's, uh, he's just, I mean, what you see is what you get. That's awesome. So, Chris, uh, today's all about you. Uh, we're going to dive into you. So let's get into it, buddy. Give me some context of your upbringing and what got you into uh, marketing. Like, how did that, how did you get into marketing? Like, give me some context. Well, I grew up in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, me and John Legend, the two greatest people to ever come out of Springfield, Ohio, uh, which is placed right between Dayton and Columbus, Ohio. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, you grew up, you told me, you told a story about, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. I was out, I was out hiking all the time. I was out swimming all the time. I was in the ocean. I was boating. I loved it. I just, I read this book. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So when I was in high school, even younger, probably seventh grade, eighth grade, um, back at the time, they still allowed subliminal advertising in magazines. And so if you don't know what subliminal advertising is, it's sort of, they sneak something in that you don't really notice right away unless you really still really, really hard at it to point it out. And um, it was kind of wild, actually. Back in the day, they would put it in ads. And I used to peel through my Sports Illustrated magazine looking for subliminal ads, trying to see if I could find out these little, it was like a, like a Where's Waldo, but with subliminal stuff. And for an example, like there might be a tall glass of Sprite or a, a tall can, like a glass of beer that's there. And in the beer and in the ice, they had carved in very subtly the word sex or uh, a, a male genitalia or a woman. And you would never notice it until you really, really stared hard at it. Now, the deal is, as most marketers know, that your brain still digests it just because you didn't actively um, point it out and say, I see that, your brain still sees it. And so you start to associate that brand with this really like sex appeal, if you will, or, you know, the opportunity that you might, this might happen to you sure, if you drink sure. this drink, for instance. It's, it's completely outlawed now. It's banned. You're not allowed to do it. What's the process now? Like, how do, how do they now, like, make sure that it's not done? Well, so I think, yeah, no, I don't know. Actually, I don't know how they process that. You know, if you get- I mean, every media company is different. Right. If you get found, I think there's yeah significant and serious fine along with it. But um, so I used to like- I've done some some runs, some runs, some ad runs, and I don't think they've ever, like, anyone's ever said, hey, we're saying this right So subliminal is not- you know, you're st we're still subliminally um, motivated and targeted, but not quite as overtly as sure, that used sure. to be. So, so to answer your question, first off, you know, as a kid, I found this stuff fascinating. And I, I remember being smart enough to know these guys are trying to manipulate me. <laughs> and it was, it was a marketing gimmick. I was smart enough to know it wasn't like, oh, check it out. I found a weird word in the ice um, of this, this drink. Is, this is in the, in the 20s. 1920s that you're yeah right yeah <laughs> probably 1980s for sure um 82 83 and 4 somewhere in there um and so uh that i mean i was being fascinated then i took a business um 
business class in high school and it was all business media and it was all about magazines and newspapers. And it was like, you know, I was, I was pretty okay student, but like every time I went to this class, like I wouldn't have had to, I didn't write a single note, whatever the teacher said, it was just imprinted. It was just, I consumed it. I understood it. I got it at a, at a level. Yeah. And so, um, it was just fascinating. So I was drawn to it you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, still to this day, you know, talk about subliminal, you know, I know that if you play French music in a wine store, they sell more French wines. If you, if you play German music, they sell more German wines. And so we're still manipulated like that in many ways. There's a great book that I love called Biology, but it's B-U-Y-ology. And it talks about all the different things that were subliminally sort of done to manipulate us without us even knowing it. For instance, um, if you go to a grocery store, did you know if, if you put, they call them shelf talker like signs, they'll put like, hey, get this for $7.99. It's only $7.99. Like it's just printed in black and white. Like to, Walmart does it. But if you use a chalkboard and you buy little sort of personal chalkboards and you write, get this for $7.99 or $8.99, that more people respond to that chalkboard because it looks like it's done with a personal touch and seems more believable and you'll sell more product. And so it's, um, I still love that kind of stuff. It still fascinates me. So did you go for, for marketing right out of high school? No, absolutely. I didn't. Um, I did what every uh, um, person in the Mefford Norval side of the family did, uh, which is I went and became a teacher. <laughs> what? what? Uh, it was just what it was the family business. My mom was a teacher. My sister was a teacher. My aunts were teachers. My uncle was superintendent of schools. It was wife. just wife is a teacher. It's just what I did. It's what you did. So this felt like, oh, this is a hobby, you know. I don't know if I could make a career of this. And uh, anyway, so I taught for three and a half years. One summer, I went to work for a buddy who owned an agency, um, and I made more than I did my, in teaching. And it was so fun, and it was so easy. And I was like, you get paid for this? Um, and I just, from the, then on, I, there was no looking back. So oh, That's great. Yeah. I love it. What was one of the best cultures you ever worked in, and what made it great? You know, Kyle, that's a good question. Obviously, I love talking about cultures and making it better. I'm um, Like you and I have talked so many times, I'm so sick and tired of hearing about people and how miserable their jobs are and how terrible their bosses are. And, and I always think, man, it, it could be better. And if you just did a few things differently, this whole organization could be different. And I really want to help people. And it's not just a matter I want to do it different. I've seen it done so well for so long in, in different places that – you know, there is a bit of a recipe that I see that a lot of people could implement. And that's why I started this podcast. That's why I want to work on this book with you. It's, it's why I want to help companies who, who reach out to me to kind of pull it all together. But have you never worked in an environment like this? You just don't know it can exist. That's right. And so um, I was that way. I was happy. You know, we'd do the Christmas dinner We'd go in, you know, I haven't had a boss that told me, you're probably making more than you'll ever make anywhere else. You should be so grateful. And, 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 you know, he didn't say it in a way that was, he was trying to lord it over me. That's just what he thought, you know, it was, and it was just kind of not a thing. You know, I didn't really love it. It wasn't my heart and soul. My passion wasn't sold out simply because I didn't have a leader who put it into me like that. And then I started working about 15 years ago for a guy named Dave Ramsey. We were small at the time, you know, for example, I think there's over 700 uh, employees there now. I started when we had about a hundred, just a little over a hundred. And uh, we had about 125 radio stations to the 600 or so that we, a little over 600 we have now. And I started working there. And what I started noticing was Dave was really clear. 
he was real clear. Hey, this is what winning looks like. Um, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pour into you. We're going to do a staff meeting every week. Uh, and a staff meeting, I know that most of you out there hearing that say your eyes glaze over, but this was more of a, an update from the entire company that you'd get. Hey, here's, what's ha- here's what we're doing that's going really well. Here's what we got going on. And I remember learning so much about the organization, just sitting in those meetings, hearing updates from everybody. And they weren't, it wasn't like we sat in a conference room. We were, we were literally in a, in a big room because the whole company would come to these meetings, all 125 of us. And then eventually all 200 of us and eventually all 300 and 400 and 500 and 600 of us would go. And, and they got better, you know, went from, hey, just stand up and give everybody an update to eventually, you know, at the end before I left, uh, I, you would go up in front of the microphone in front of everyone and you'd go through your slides that were prepared and you'd do this every week, every, week. every Monday morning. And, you know, there were some of, some of us might go, that's exhausting. And there were weeks where you go, man, I don't know what I'm going to talk about or whatever, but I learned so much from, about the business and about what we were doing. You know, Jim Collins says- Hold on, how long were those? An hour, they'd be done by nine. We always made sure- One hour Monday huddle. Yeah, there was, and we did not deviate from it. You know, we rarely did, we go past nine. It would just, it had to be run as tight. And, you know, if there was too much information, some weeks we'd have too much, we just cut it. We'd put it in for next week. Or Dave would say, hey, we're running out of time. Let's, let's cover this next week. And so uh, I learned so much. And so only to start there to say, wow, this is great. This is a guy who wants everybody to know everything that's going on. And then he would always encourage us. You know, he'd be the guy on the front of the stage cheering on. I mean, that's an incredible story. You know, somebody would write in, um, and if you don't know David, it's like the financial piece. We did events, we did books, we did uh, financial uh, peace university, which is like a nine week course that we'd put throughout communities and churches all over the country. Um, and so someone would say, hey, I lost my, my financial peace kit or my, I lost my book in a flood or a fire. And we'd mail it in and people would send us emails all the time telling us about stuff. And he would say, man, good job replacing that. Good job, customer care team, taking that order. Good job shipping guys, putting that, getting that out to them quickly. Good job marketing team, making this attractive enough that they even wanted to do it in the first place. You know, good job events team who they heard us for the first time and bought to get there. That's incredible. So he just really shared so much of the appreciation for what he did. And he was so grateful. He was praising in public. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of people that will they'll say, well, I do that. But he genuinely did it and he genuinely cared. But I think what happens is a lot of guys then don't do the other side, which is talk frankly to you. So they would also talk frankly. Hey, we need you to come in prepared for these meetings. Hey, are we not doing enough to prepare you? You know, I've sent you to, I've given you books to read. I've sent you to trainings. We do this stuff to stay on top of stuff. Why, aren't, why isn't things working out? Like help me understand where, where we're not getting things done. And so it was sort of, he encouraged you and he also talked straight to you. You never doubted where you stood or, or what the goal was when you worked for that guy. And that was probably one of the most incredible experiences, just seeing how um, you know, passionate people were in an environment like that, how honest they could be. You know, and, when it, and there was that level of transparency and honesty from the top when there was that much appreciation and gratefulness at the top, it permeated everywhere. You know, our admins would be appreciative and grateful. You know, our our, uh, managers and VPs would be grateful and appreciative. They would also be honest and transparent. They would also shoot you straight. You know, I can tell you there, there, there there's lots of times that my advisor, Suzanne, or my uh, EVP would call me in and and tell me what I needed to do to make things better. Um, And she was always right. And she never did it from, uh, I don't like this guy. She always did it from, hey, we're all trying to work hard to make this better and you're not doing enough or your work isn't, isn't quite up to where it needs to be. 
And so eventually you learn what it takes to sort of rise to the occasion that consistently and you really love it. And then when you have a Christmas party and it's it's incredible and it's legendary, or then when you have a picnic, or then when you do catered lunches, you know the gratefulness and the appreciation is genuine. You know that everyone there is sold out for the right reasons. And, and when I say for right reasons, meaning that they, they believe in what we're doing, they believe in who they're working for, they believe in the work that they're doing is making a difference. And when you start to work in an environment like that, man, everything changes. And you go, why isn't everything like this? Mm-hmm. Very similar, I've been doing some work recently out at the San Diego Christian College. And there's a, the chief operating officer out there is a guy named Bill Crawford. And he is exactly the same, just encouraging, straight up honest. He shoots you straight. I'm gonna treat you like an adult. We're not just gonna tell you everything's good. We're gonna tell you when things are bad. We're gonna tell you what you can do to fix it and what we can all do to sort of raise this boat back up to where it needs to be. And so, you know, Bill is that way very much at the college. The college was uh, not doing great. It, w- it was sort of at a turning point. What are we gonna do here? Is it is it gonna collapse? You know, a lot of colleges have collapsed here recently just because of the COVID crisis and that. And Bill has said, no, we're not gonna do it. And he, he doubled down on everything, doubled down on appreciation, doubled down on gratefulness, doubled down on the size of the emissions team, doubled down on the size of the marketing and initiatives that they wanna do. And as a result, we're seeing double the results, uh, double the growth. Um, And it's been phenomenal. And so when you work for guys that sort of appreciate their team, they're grateful for what their team does for them. I think Kyle, you and I have talked so much about leadership being one-sided. We send these individuals off to get leadership training and it's all about themselves. And so they come back and then when it's all about themselves, they want everybody to know what they've done. They want everybody to see what they're doing. They want everyone to tell them how great they are and how appreciative they are of the leader when really the best people I've ever worked for are the ones that don't need any of that. They spend almost 100% of their time figuring out ways to empower the guys that work for them and then show them how much they appreciate how hard they're working and how grateful for they are for the work that's getting done. So... On that vein, right? We we it's easy. How would I say this? It's not easy, but it's fun. It's encouraging to talk about these great wins, right? But we also, and what I think is so cool about the SEAL teams is how we how we debrief our failures, right? We 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 do that very meticulously. We come in after an action, after, excuse me, an operation. We come in, we sit down, we put our gear away, and then we debrief, you know, how we jack something up. So what's something that that you did along the way, a time where you negatively impacted one of these cultures? And what did you learn? Because I know you've got some good ones. Because, you know, all great leaders have, have mistakes. We all do. Yeah, not all great leaders or not all leaders want to tell you about them. So probably the uh, one the one that comes to money is is Groupon. It was one of these hot things that had come out. Gosh, now I feel like it's eight years ago, nine years ago. Can I, can I interject? I have a fun Groupon story real quick. Yeah, yeah. Do you know that Candice's uh, shop was the first ever hair salon in all of San Diego to run a Groupon? Really? Back when they had it, just the single page for like San Diego yeah. or LA or whatever, it was just one page and it was one offering. It was actually, Candice was the first hair salon to I do it. She sold, I think, 900 in, in 10 hours. No, no, <laughs> that's what I hear. Um, so it, anyways, they, they had come out. And so I was like, oh, we should do this. We have a couple of events that in some of the markets where we're, you know, we're just getting introduced. We just got on the radio there for maybe a year. 
And uh, we were doing big venues at the time, like Kemper Arena, Reunion Arena. I think both those are, have been demolished. But um, so we were selling out big venues and we needed to get, uh, to get them filled. And so I thought Groupon was a good way to advertise. Sure. So a lot of people look at it from, hey, how much money we're going to make right. versus this. And, uh, and that's not a bad way to look at things. Uh, but uh, they looked at it. And so I had said, you know, if I was going to put a billboard up along the highway, a big bulletin, it might cost me $10,000 for 60 or 90 days. So this might cost me a loss of $10,000 on an average ticket price for the same amount across the board uh, for the same thing. So I just look at it as about apples to apples type deal, but I might get 100,000 email addresses and put them in touch and, and do that. So that, that was great um, and get in front of them. So I liked it for that. Well, I had set this up and put it to sort of launch because I didn't wanna launch it immediately. I, I wanted to launch it towards the end of the campaign. Well, in the meantime, some of my other marketing had kicked in. And we were just, all of a sudden things had ramped up and we, we'd caught fire. <laughs> and we were selling you know, tickets for 50, 60 bucks a pop um, to fill this place. And we were on pace to, to oversell it. Wow. And, the, and the Groupon kicks in. And it, goes and it was like, the Groupon was like 25 bucks or something. And we sold 11 or I think a thousand of those. And so, I mean, we lost, you know, $40,000, give or take, uh, give or take. I, I remember um, Bill was my uh, boss at the time. He was kind of overseeing the, sort of the number two guy in, in the company. He calls me up and says, hey, can we, good job selling this thing out. It was incredible. We didn't think it would happen. It was a good job. Blah. Don't ever <laughs> leave that much money on the table again. Do you know how much it cost us? That's, those are important revenue dollars for the uh, sort of us, because at the time we were, we were a little bit struggling in the event world um, um, because they were so expensive. We were still trying to figure out kind of the best way to move forward with these things. And so I remember going, it's kind of like someone told me once, hey, your dog knows the difference between accidentally stepping on him and when you kick him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Bill was kind of accidentally stepping on me there. I mean, I knew... Um, that he wasn't really mad because we'd sold out, but also don't let that happen again. <laughs> and, and it was embarrassing. And um, just, it got away from me. And, and so that was probably from a revenue standpoint, losing that much, you know, people out there probably lost a lot more than that, but you know, those, pro- you know, I don't ever want to lose more than that. And if we were going to lose, at least we lost it sort of in a good way, pursuing a growth because we could still sell stuff to them. It wasn't, um, didn't take us under by any stretch, but still I remember being really, really embarrassed by the whole thing. And I was sort of new in the position. I'd been there maybe in that, in that role as VP of uh, events for six months, I think at the time. Um, and I had been doing all the marketing. So yeah. And then um, probably the second thing I learned that was hardest was believing that everyone was as sold out and as driven and as passionate as me on a project um, to the point where it's, we all do that. Yeah. Um, well, I was the VP and um, I just assumed the the team that sort of was under me was as excited about all this new stuff as I was. I had not taken really any or made any effort to kind of bring them on board, get them excited. Um, I just sort of been elevated. It's kind of when you go from peer to superior, you just assume everybody's the same and, and it's actually not the same anymore at all. And uh and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get them to work. And I started making people mad and people that I really used to like and go to lunch with now or didn't want to go to lunch with me and didn't like me. And um, because I was so driven and focused on achieving this goal, I had forgotten to bring the team along, but also failed to believe that or understand that they didn't really care about that goal. That was that was anything they wanted to do. They were happy with the status quo that was happening before the leadership made a decision to remove 
the the former VP and put me in charge. And so um, I thought, well, the, everyone's going to be frustrated with this. And when I get in there, everybody will see that we're going to be heading in a new and better direction and let's get going. And that was not the case. And it was, it was a miserable six to eight months because it's three months to sort of identify where you're, so three months to sort of realize that no one's on the same page as you and they don't care. Three months to sort of figure out who needs to go and what you need to do. And in three months to sort of start the process to move those along and get them out and get the right people in. So it was a nine month struggle that was constant and frustrating, but we eventually turned the entire thing around and it worked out. But had I known to look for that sooner in myself, you know, I don't want to blame them necessarily. You know, I certainly didn't do anything to help the process. And there were some people, it's like, you know, when you turn a truck too fast, and there's a lot of people in the back, sometimes you you throw a few people off. And um, that's what happened here. And, and uh, you know, looking back, it didn't have to be that way because I didn't have to run like that. We could have all sort of sat around and talked. Like Jeff Campbell said in one of the podcasts, where he's the former global CEO of working. I got everybody in a room and we did some flip charts and just let them bitch for 20, 30 minutes. Had I done that, it might have been different over that nine month period. So, have you, have you been more engaged up front or got a better pulse, if you will, from the beginning? Yeah. Hey, how does everyone think this is okay? I mean, no, we, it's so, it's so common as leaders, we get, we get focused on something and, and we see the end goal, we see the vision, or maybe we came up with both of those on our own. And, uh, and then we put the vision out, we could see the goal line, we could see how we can get there. It's so much fun along the way. But then as you lay out the plan, you're, you're forgetting that aspect of, of getting the pulse on how much buy-in everyone else has. Yeah. 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 It's, (laughs) it's a common one. We all do it. I've, I've done that a hundred times, right? You know, I really have, I've done that maybe even maybe even 200 times now that I think about it. So, but that's how you get better, right? Absolutely. So, so along that, uh, here, here's what I do. And I'd love to hear what your perspective is. Like, don't, don't create more of the same mistakes, right? So when I do do that, I try to consistently bounce all along the way of the mission planning cycle, all the way along the way of the of the goal, all the way along the way of the vision, bounce that off the team members so that they have buy-in before it's even stated, before it's even laid out for for uh, all of us as a team. Uh, what are what are some other hacks that you do nowadays? Oh, well, now I get everybody together. And I say, hey, we, here's an issue. Let's all just think about it. Hey, I can do the sticky note thing. Actually, I do two things. We don't brainstorm, but I ask everybody to come up with an idea and put it on a sticky note. And then we tap the sticky notes on the wall and then we start to organize them. And then we all gather around and start to talk about um, a plan and how we might work on it. And then, you know, I tell them, hey, I'll come back to you and I'll kind of present what I think we all said. And I could literally walk out of the room at that point and come back up with a 180 degree different plan. And they generally don't care because they've all had a say in it now. What about, what about when it's not a 180 degree turn and, and you actually see the vision, you know the goal line, you know how to get there and, you, and you're 100% right in your convictions and you say, hey, I, I don't really need that much change here or much improvement because that does happen from time to time too. It's not that common, but it does happen from time to time as well, but you need buy-in. 
Yeah, you know, you totally need buy-in. You always have to have it. That's probably the one lesson I've learned is you can't go anywhere without buy-in, no matter how great you are. Like one of the, the gifts that I've had is I am able to see further ahead than most people. And, and by that, I mean what we need to do, who we need to hire, how much we need to budget. How much, like I've just always had this vision to be able to see it. For whatever reason, it just pops in my head and I can see it differently. And people struggle with that because they can't see it. And I have a hard time explaining to them why it's going to be like this because I just see it. I don't like the growth, the the um, the work, the resources needed. Um, and so bringing that back, you have to have people on board. I've learned if I run too fast or run too hard, all it does is create problems for me and I've got to slow down. Because on a scale of change, I'm like, I don't, one to 10, I'm a nine. And I'm constantly running out ahead of change. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Do. What do you mean you're a nine? What's the 10? What's a 10 one? 10 is like, every, like everything could change. Like you, you know. That's a 10 you, you and a new one is day. nothing changes? One is, I don't so ever wait, want change So you're saying like 90% of the time when you have vision goal, 90% of the time it's completely changed? No, no. What I'm saying is I'm comfortable with change. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And so I'm a nine on that scale. Some people don't want any change and they're at one. Yeah. And I think most people on a team range between four and, and six. Um, and so- if I run, if I typically operate where I am, all I do is frustrate and scare people. What do you think you are in terms of, how would you kind of break out your your ratios uh, when you do when you do a projects? Meaning, like, hey, twenty five percent of my projects, I don't have much change. Twenty fifty percent, it's a it's a one eighty, and uh, you know, twenty five percent is a right or left turn a 90 degree turn. Yeah. Um, what would you, how, how would you ratio that out, do you think? Well, you know, in marketing, oftentimes when I get brought in, there is a problem. And so they're all looking for a change. And so it's not always hard to say, hey, we're gonna change 90% of what we're doing here. Um, but sometimes you're, you look at the stuff that, you know, is given to me and it's, it's like, hey, you just need to change some of the content. Some of your wording is bad. It's not driving anything. You know, I was working with a client this past week and I honestly said to him, they want to do a webinar. And I said to him, guys, I have to be honest with you. I have no idea what your company does. And I don't have, I don't have any idea what you're trying to sell here. And I've read your website t three times. And I've watched the videos. They had four videos they sent me three times. And they reached about six or seven minutes long. And I'm just be blunt with them. Um, you know, maybe in the past, I wouldn't be as blunt. But I've learned if I... If I if I'm not blunt up front, I just get myself into problems because then I start to dance around it. And so, but it actually led to some great stuff. And the reality was they didn't really need to change that much. They just needed some text changes mm -hmm. on their website um, to give a better sort of uh, understanding of what they did, you know. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, uh, we develop characters and paradigm shifts and quantitative. So you still yeah. haven't answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say ratio wise. I'm just curious. I'm fascinated with that idea. Like, how many do you think it is? Like, you go in with a with, a, with an objective, with a plan, a vision. How often do you think you uh, you do a right or left turn, a ninety degree, or you do one hundred and eighty, or you you do small little maneuvers? No, I think you have to do small at the start. You've got to do not what you have small. to do. I'm saying, what do you think your breakdown is? For like me? your ratio. Yeah, 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 yours. That I want to do or I end no, up no, doing? No, 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 no. What is your ratio over like the last 10 years? What do you think it ends up being? Of change? Um, probably 75%. 75% of like 180s or like turns? Uh, no, I'd say uh, 90 degrees. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I would, I would, 
I would go so far as to say I'm right there with you. Probably, maybe even higher. Maybe even I might have 75, 70% 180s, you know? Like, but it hey, wasn't we- always like that. You know, once I got the team in I wanted and we were thriving, you know, um, then it was things were on autopilot. Sure. And it was uh, everything was sort of operating down on the chain scale of, of one to three on a daily basis for years. Um, and I discovered that that got me really, really bored. Mm-hmm. Um, I was no longer uh, energized by going into work. Uh, I didn't you know, find the work fulfilling. Um, it wasn't until after I left uh, an organiza- one of the organizations I've been working for for a long time that I realized what really, really energized me was fixing broken things. Some people that stresses them out, the, you know, that all the decisions have to be made, uh, there are all the calls they have to make on the budgets and the dollars, and it's all riding on them. Um, the fact that it's broken and nobody has figured out how to fix it, for me, that just super energizes me. And so I know that I have a shelf life probably within a company of four to six years. Would you, would you say that's probably been one of your longest or one of your biggest struggles over, the, over your career is like getting to a point where you get bored? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Cause there's, cause there's a lot of uh, people out there that, you know, hey, variety is the spice of life. And so they get to a point where they're like bored and then they're like, hey, well, now what do I do? Exactly. So what did you do? How do, how do you, let me rephrase it. How do you get through that? What's your, what's your mechanism for getting through that? Well, a couple of things. Once I realized that, and then I, you know, it took some other time. So I thought, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to start my own agency. And so I started trying to be all things to all people. So, you know, when it comes to an advertising agency or marketing agency, you know, a lot of people want design and they want, uh, you know, website created. And eventually I just said, hey, I don't want to do any of that. So I go in and say, I'm not a graphic designer. I don't do graphic design. Don't hire me for that. I do marketing strategy. You know, I'm going to tell you why people are going to find you. Um, I'm going to tell people why they should want to interact with your company. I'm going to help you build a tribe of people that gets excited to work with you. And I'm going to show you the right words and context. And even when it comes to social media, I don't want to post your stuff, but I'll give you a strategy for it. A lot of times people don't think in those terms when even, for instance, when it comes to social media, they, they post stuff. Like, oh, this is a great photo. Let's post it on our social media. Whereas if you say, hey, look, we're going to do something that's inspirational every day, something that's encouraging every day, and something that's informative every day. And I say, okay, let's build that out. Let's do an inspirational post every 30% of the time. Let's do an educational post or, or uh, um, you know, whatever it was I just said, um, 30% or 25% of the time or 10% of the time. And then let's do an educational, something about you and your organization and what you do that is useful to your your tribe 70% of the time. So your matrix may look something like, and I know those numbers don't have, so let's go like 25, um, 10, and then whatever it is, 65. And let's go a one, a two, and a three and assign those sort of a metric number. And so one, two, one, Three, one, two, one, three. So instead of posting just a picture, now you have a strategy, an inspiration, a motivation, an education, or inspiration, motivation, inspiration, education, inspiration, motivation, inspiration. How would you define the difference between inspiration and motivation? Well, I mean, I'm I'm just throwing those fancy words out. I don't know that I would write something for you like that, but inspiration might be something that um, it might be. 
hey, it's time for you to come in and get your, you know, if we're doing something for Candace, it's time for you to come in and get your hair done. You know, it's, 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 it looks bad enough. You know, it's sort of an inspiration. There have been 10 other women who've come in this week and had the, their, their hair done and, and they look amazing. They all got dates, they're all married now. You know, whatever, silly. A motivation or um, that might be motivation. Inspiration might be a quote or something, you know, by uh, um, some famous, uh, who, what's the, the makeup guy, um, Revlon? Revlon, who said, had this quote that said, um, in the factory, you manufacture cosmetics. In the, in the department store, we sell hope. And so that might be, so I might, motivation might be that, inspiration might be this. And then education might be, hey, did you know if you brush your hair a hundred times a day? Yeah. But anyways, I just discovered that I was, I had a talent for helping develop a strategic marketing plan that you could give to people then who could create a graphic or could post something. Um, but oftentimes they're not the same. People skip that part because they can find somebody who does, who can create them a fancy design, but there's no thought or strategy or purpose behind what they're actually trying to do or sell. Okay. So I went, I went too far into the marketing scientific side of things and it's fine. fine. So I'm just, so again, though, someone gets bored yeah. was my question. If someone gets bored. How do they push through What is the, what's the technique, the mechanism, the hack that you've used for yourself or you just, you just, it's identifying it and knowing, Hey, at this point, this might happen. And I know what that feeling is. And it's time for Chris to move on. You know, it's funny. Cause I don't know that I've ever strategically thought of this. This is maybe why I'm not struggling to answer this, but kind of talking in a circle here. But I would probably say one is I, once I discovered that this is who I was, yeah. it made it easier. Then when I would start to sort of find myself getting bored on the day-to-day, -day, I would start to, I would have to look up and ask myself this question. Does it look like this is going to be the case for the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? Or is there something on the horizon? Are we going to start to, are we bringing somebody new in, or a new speaker, a new opportunity, a new event, a new program, a new project that I'll get to drive forward um, in six to three months, three to six months? Okay, that's cool. I can, I can, I can hang in there. And if not, then I start to say, okay, Knowing that, let me start to look, who else can I help? Is there something else around here? If I'm going to leave and I'm going to get bored, is there an opportunity then for me to go and leave? You know, I think some people just quit. I don't know, that's a good idea. Um, but I think recognizing it in yourself and then maybe finding other outlets, you know, trying to learn a new skill, trying to find a new hobby, trying to take, you know, your vacation time that you probably haven't taken forever to kind of recharge yourself. All those things sort of come into play for me. And I've learned once I hit all of those things, I've tried all that and it still doesn't feel exciting. Then maybe it's time for me to start to look. Yeah, the problem is, Kyle, I think some people get too tied to their paychecks. So, you know who I admire that handles this really well? I went down to uh, Toyota North American headquarters uh, last year. I think it was last year in um, in uh, Dallas. Plano. And, yeah. And my brother was supposed to move there because um, they had a plant in California and a plant in Kentucky, and they moved him to Texas. Mm -hmm. And you know what they do, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, I got to meet the uh, most of the exec team down there. It was, it was a wonderful trip. And... Uh, and we were walking through, and you know what was fascinating about this entire team? I mean, you know, there's 15, 20 execs that have been at the company for, you know, 10, 20, even two of them had been there for 30 years. And you know what all of them had in common? They all had this in common. They all had variety over their 10, 20, or 30 years, meaning 
one of the guys was in fin- in the financial department. But guess what other departments he'd been in over the last 20 years? He'd been in marketing. He'd been in engineering. He'd been in design. He'd been in branding. Like it it was it was fascinating. You're like, wait, you you're in accounting, you're in financing, you're in the finance department, but you know, ten years ago you were in marketing. What the heck? And so what uh, they do, which I think is absolutely fascinating at Toyota, is they'll allow an individual to uh, to cross kind of internally cross transfer departments. It's pretty incredible that to do that. Cool. Oh, it's so if you're a person like um, you know maybe like me that loves variety. The, the variety is the spice of life. Uh, they they have a home for you somewhere in the organization, and and it's really really incredible to watch their culture come to play. Where, you know, if if the if someone if an individual is getting to that point where they're bored, and they walk up to their boss and say, "Hey, uh, you know, I'd like to uh, to make a change," it's extremely well received because it's part of their culture. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So anyway, sorry, we got off topic. Back to you, big guy. All right. So you have uh, a kinship with, I believe, and are drawn to the SEAL veteran community. Um, Not everybody is. Some are, some aren't. What is it do you think that you love most about this community? Um, well, I'll tell you, I've, I've read a lot of books on the SEALs and that sort of introduced me to who those guys are, including yourself. And, uh, you know, I always admired sort of the adventure spirit that was there that Hollywood created. But I think over the years as I've worked at, in events and putting on events and creating events and meeting all kinds of speakers backstage, you know, one funny example was I was waiting for Zig Ziglar. He's the, you know, if you remember Zig, uh, backstage once and his daughter was, uh, gonna have me come in and he, she wanted me to take a photo of her and him for their book cover. And I'm like, I'm not a photographer. Like, well, I, don't, I have no idea what you want to do. And I, I found myself waiting in the hallway and to the left was Rudy Giuliani and to the right was Colin Powell. And I was like, why in the world am I here? But I've never been uh, a fanboy, if you will, um, in that. And so I just, you know, it, I've always just taken it with a grain of salt. Oh, cool, here I am. What a great story. I, would, I don't think anybody else would care to hear that. Or some people would just sort of, it would, they bring it up everywhere. And so I kind of, one, um, found myself drawn to you guys because you never seem to, the SEALs never seem to have that, look at me, I'm great. Look how amazing I am mentality. You and I have even shared, you know, from time to time. It's the, it's the if you've never met a group of SEALs all together, um, and my first time was at your retirement, there were maybe 30 there, I don't know, more. Um, and I'd never seen a more ragtag group of guys. And I don't mean that they're ragtag at all, but they're just sort of an eclectic Motley Crue mix that definitely Hollywood would never have cast <laughs> to be the most elite warriors um, on planet Earth. And so, I, you know, that was part of just real down to earth guys. There's this brotherhood. Um, there's this sense of you guys um, help each other. You simply help each other no matter what. You could be anywhere in the world doing whatever you want. And if one of your guys called, you would be wherever he needed you to be within 24 hours. And so there's so much to appreciate about that. And then I think there's a sense of, well, I can't be a SEAL, but what can I do to help, you know, um, help move these guys into transitions um, into their next step of life and just encourage them, um, whatever it might be, pray for them if that's what they want. 
but I, I like it. And believe it or not, um, you guys aren't jerks either. You know, every one of you are genuine, friendly, kind, thoughtful. And, um, you know, who wouldn't be drawn to that, to be honest? You know, what's funny is, uh, you know, that Motley crew that you're talking about, we all can, uh, even though it might not seem like it for, for us civilians, we could pick out that Motley crew in a crowd of a thousand people in two seconds. Really? <laughs> if, if we don't even know them. We can see it. It's hilarious. Like you can spot a Navy SEAL from across the room. If you've never met the guy, you've never seen him before in your life, you can do that. And I'm not going to tell you how, because that's our little secret. <laughs> it's not It's not because he has two bourbons, three beer bottles. And uh... <laughs> any team guy will tell you they can do it. All right. So <laughs> what? what's one of your personal accomplishments that you're most proud of? Oh, um, I may have told this one before on one of our other podcasts, but I'll share it again because it's definitely the one I'm most proud of. When I got asked to take over the events team at uh, Ramsey, uh, it was in bad shape. Uh, people were frustrated with the events team. Um, we had grown ourselves to about 400, 450 people at the time, and we were doing a lot of events. Uh, the radio, like we would do events for our top 50 radio affiliates. We would do events for our top 50 FPU providers. We do, I mean, we do events with Dave. We do events with the other personalities we brought on board. And we brought in some new authors. We were doing, so we were doing a lot of events. And it got to the point where it was so bad that the events team was constantly a source of frustration because they had a hard time sort of meeting uh, where they should be financially. And it was always a challenge and frustrating. Uh, and on top of that, the other departments started to hire their own event experts mm -hmm. um, because they just didn't want to work with the events team within the organization. And uh, the, that guy got sort of moved to another part of the company to see if maybe he would thrive somewhere else. Um, and, you know, to be fair, I think that the company and, and what he was being asked to do had sort of outgrown his skills. He had taken it to a point where he, like that was as far as he could take it. And so we, we should show appreciation to the fact that he'd taken it from nothing to there, um, but he, he couldn't take it further. And so they, they dropped him out and then there was this interim where nobody let us except sort of the VP of the company was sort of the de facto guy for about four months. And then finally we were having breakfast at uh, Cracker Barrel and I was like, Billy, here's what we need to do. And I just kind of laid it all out. And I wasn't like making a play for, hey, I, I should be the guy. I was like, hey, I'm just sitting here in the marketing sense. And, uh, and you could, sorry, that my dog is walking and he's sort of tipper tapping on the wood floors and we're trying to figure out if you can hear it. If you can't, that's Moose, he appreciates you. Um, so anyway, so Bill and I are having breakfast and he's not, you know, I'm saying, here's what we need to do, but I'm not saying it from a, I should be the boss. I was just saying, here's what we need to do for crying out loud. I know that you're kind of running this, but things are kind of falling apart. And I had sort of started acting like the leader. We had somebody new join the team. I introduced him to everybody. And uh, it's that old sense. I just started acting like the leader before anybody made me the leader. And I didn't ask to be the leader and I wasn't like presumptuous about it. I was just kind of saying, hey, this needs to be done. I'll take it. And so they elevated me up. This is getting a long story, but long story short, um, I came on board and within three years, we had turned the entire thing around. We had uh, gone from doing about 15 events to almost 100 events that we were doing. Wow, that's the, big scale. The team had gone from, from 10 to 50 that I was overseeing and I'd hired them, every one of them. 
Um, and we were just thriving. The department was thriving financially. We were thriving as a group. And so when you asked me what the biggest accomplishment was, I would say this. We went from nobody wanting to work with us and the other departments trying to hire their own person to we were getting ready to build a new building on I-65. And each VP was meeting with the um, architects to kind of tell them what we needed and what would, where we want to be. And we walked in the room, uh, me and uh, my sort of guy that was helping me run things um, on my team, he was sort of our director of event production, Pete. And so Pete and I walk in the room and they say, oh, you're the famous event guys. The architect said this to us. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And she's like, well, so far, everybody we've met with wants to be next to your team. And so we'd gone from nobody wanting to work with us to everybody wanting to sit next to us and be a part of what we were doing. And we really had created an amazing culture. Um, and it was a lot of fun to work with. We were a lot of fun to travel with. Um, and everyone there, all the guys, all the gals, all the admins to the directors were, were just super people and um, a lot of fun. And I went about hiring them with, hey, do, are they smart? Do they fit our culture? Are they qualified? And do I wanna hang out with them on the road? Um, backstage at an event. And so just following those four simple rules help us transition everything. And uh, probably so my biggest accomplishment that I can point to was completely turning that thing around from top to bottom within the organization. Oh, bravo. You know, what's funny is we don't ever really talk about that little aspect of, um, <laughs> of identifying, because it really, uh, of identifying departments or something from a, from a position, a, literally a physical positioning standpoint but it made me think about something and I've seen it multiple times over, over my career. Cause you know, especially in the last couple of years, we were doing this massive, you know, $1.6 billion transition of um, uh, moving our, our spaces and our buildings to another area in San Diego. And it's fascinating when you have certain departments that are like, I want to be next to that department. And others are like, I don't want to be next to that department, you know? <laughs> and you can kind of pick a, pick apart like, wow, what's going on with the culture of that of that department? It's pretty funny. But well, we were cool. living, I mean, there was a, a point that we had started sort of being this rock star life. I and mean, we were traveling all the time. People saw us all the time. Um, we were on the road. I mean, we were in Dallas. We were in New York. We were in Boston. We were in Seattle. And they're like, man, you guys have it great. But they didn't see the grind. And so one of the things I would say to my team is, hey, you can come in and complain. You can complain to anybody on, on the events team about the grind. You can complain about the long hours. You can complain about having to be here on Monday because we couldn't miss the Monday staff meeting, even if we'd worked all weekend, which is cool. But we, get, we made a time up. Hey, take Wednesday off. Take Thursday off. Take Friday off. Um, and I said, you can only complain to us because the rest of the company sees us like we're rock stars. Mm -hmm. And if you start to complain to them, they'll go, oh, geez, you must have a rough. You were in New York last week eating, you know, some great food. And, you know, you were on the Miracle Mile in Chicago. You know, one night we're eating on Miracle Mile. The next night we're eating in, in Manhattan. I mean, we did have it good, but it was a grind. You know, if you've never traveled, you don't really understand the long lines, the long waits, the luggage, the check into the hotel, check out of the hotel. And um, it is a grind, but... I think after a while, people started to look at us differently. Like we were this super cool crew of people. Um, and so we just played it up within the organization. Chris, along that, in terms of like marketing and your experience in marketing, what is your perspective on, on a marketing campaign that looks so perfect? <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people try and wait to get everything perfect. Their video, they want perfect. Their website, they want perfect. Their promotional piece, they want perfect. 
Um, and my experience has been, if you look too perfect, you seem too inapproachable. And this is especially true to the larger organizations. The larger organizations um, always seem to come off as so perfect, so clean, so unapproachable. And so when you uh, are just trying to reach the average guy with your product, if you come off as too large and too consuming, they'll believe that they can't actually speak with you or you're, they're just out of touch for the client you want. And so if you're trying to find someone in the consumer base, if your advertising or marketing looks too comfortable, uh, you're probably losing clients. All right, so let's get into our personal hacks. Number one, you currently reading any books? Yeah, I'm reading uh, Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. Mm. So I love it. Oh, yeah, that one is good. Yeah, and he had another I need sort to of, read that one again. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's been a while. Sort of a follow-up called Marketing Made Simple, which is super easy to read and great. And, you know, I, I love reading these books. They, You know, some people might go, you don't even know Marketing Made Simple? But, you know, it, what it does is it energizes me. It gets me excited. It starts making me think again about stuff. And honestly, these books really help me talk to customers and clients in a better way because sometimes I get it but it's hard for me to communicate to someone like that. When I read these books, it makes it really clear and easy for me to understand how to communicate it. What's one of your favorite books? Um, probably uh, Lynchpin. Um, I've said this before, I think, but uh, I read that book. I only think I read it a third of the way through. Seth Godin has this point in the book, a by Seth Godin, where he says, if most uh, employers are looking for somebody who just comes in on time, does their job and doesn't create any drama. And then he goes on to say, but those people never actually get promoted. And so that's not really what managers want. And it really changed me because I remember I went in the next day and I stopped doing everything that I thought they wanted and creating no drama and just showing up and leaving on time. And I sent an email out saying, I've had it, take it or leave it, but this is what I think. And it's frustrating. And I sent it to my boss's boss. <laughs> and did you CC your boss? Yeah, I, I did. Um, and my boss called me in and said, why did you do that? And I had told him it wasn't anything new and it had to do with how we were launching events. It was sort of a finger in the air. And I'm like, there's this metric we could use. We should take these 10 things into consideration. We have a lot of money we're putting on the line. We're taking a lot of risk. I think we can mitigate that risk if we did it this way. I think we could also get way out in front of these launches so they weren't so consuming and so last minute, blah, blah, blah. And so he comes in and says, why did, why did you do that? And um, I said, well, you know, I was frustrated at the time and, you know, I copied you. I didn't want you out of the loop. I wasn't trying to go around you, just kind of through you. And uh, I remember he left. He wasn't angry. It was more, more demoralized. <laughs> and um, his boss calls me the next day and says, let's talk. This is the greatest thing that <laughs> I've ever seen. So Lynchpin really treat. And it was that point, Kyle, that everything sort of took off. Like, hey, this guy looks like he's got more on the ball than just. Um, so Lynchpin did it. And then I loved Moneyball. Um, the book about, um, you know, how a guy uses data to build a baseball team. Yeah. And uh, I love it because it's the ad analytics are there. Um, they can help transform everything. And I'm not saying we should rely on every single thing in analytic. Experience matters too. But we don't make enough decisions sometimes, especially in the small business world, based on analytics. Personal uh, daily rituals? Yeah, I get up in the morning. Um I have a protein shake, I work out, do my Devo, um, I read a little. Uh, and if I don't do all that stuff then, I don't do it in the evenings. It's the only time I can do it. And then I feel better all day long because oh, I've just knocked it sure. out. Yeah, yeah. So how long is that whole ritual? That's like two hours, yeah? Yeah, probably an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah, yeah. So you got to be up. I could probably get it done in an hour, but I get a little lazy. How early you got to be up? Uh, I usually, I don't really set an alarm. I usually get up around 5.30. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's my money spot right yeah. there, 5.30. 
personal goals for the summer or year? Well, for the year, well, for the summer, I just got back from Yosemite. If you've never been to Yosemite, it's the greatest, most beautiful place I've on earth. I've had to listen to Chris talk about Yosemite <laughs> for about, I think, six weeks now. Every couple of days, oh my gosh. I get reminded. It was because how of COVID. They're only giving so many passes. So we like had the whole park to ourselves, which I hear is rare in July. So um, as far as goals for the rest of the year, uh, I want to launch a podcast with you. I think that would be cool if we could get a few listeners to download this. And we subscribe. should record this entire conversation. Oh my gosh! Why didn't we press play? Or re- record, record, Chris. Oh, play. We'd be listening to something. <laughs> we should have pressed record. Gosh, dang it! All right. Well, this has been wonderful. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed getting to hear a little more about Chris, some of his background experience. You're going to get to hear a lot more of it as we uh, continue down this journey of life. But uh, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to hear some about you, buddy. So uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for opening yourself up. And I uh, want to interrupt you because I haven't interrupted you yet in this entire podcast. uh, You don't interrupt me. This is mine. I do the interrupting. You don't interrupt me interrupting you. So I just want to thank you for uh, opening yourself up to all of us so we can all learn and uh, share. Go ahead. Floor's all yours, big guy. That's it. It's just, I feel like (laughs) those are pretty serious compared to the usual podcast that we do. Oh, this is good. All right, buddy. Well, let's, uh, everyone, have a great week, weekend, whatever you're doing, and uh, take care. Culture Force out. Mm -hmm.